Hey, in context, friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out, and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's Handbook to Prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us, and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com slash survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Written to believers in Colossae, this modern day Turkey in Asia Minor, still there today. And if you've been to Greece or done a Greece-Turkey tour You have traveled where Paul traveled. You have walked where these things began. You can't change geography, oceans, rivers, mountaintops. They're all the same. And Colossae, of course, in modern-day Turkey. This is another prison epistle, more than likely, I think, from Rome. We've talked about the four prison epistles. And so he's writing this, sending it back to the church at Colossae. Overall, this letter is a letter of correction, of teaching that's infiltrating the thinking of the Colossian believers. And so Paul from a distance is trying to recalibrate them. Let's look at our friends Wilkinson and Boa in the book I've referenced many times to this series, Talk Through the Bible. They write in part, Colossians is one of the most Christ-centered books of the Bible. Paul stresses the supremacy of the person of Christ and the completeness of salvation he provides in order to combat the growing heresy, a growing heresy, in the church at Colossae. Christ, the Lord of creation, and the head of the body, which is the church, is completely sufficient for every spiritual and practical need of the believer. Again, Christ, the Lord of creation, and head of the body, which is his church, is completely sufficient for every spiritual and practical need of the believer. The problem with a truth or a proposition is it never sheds a tear. That last sentence is worth $25 at least. But to move from our thinking into our hearts and minds and be sort of integrated takes some time. But I hope when you leave here today you'll know what you already know is that he's supreme. He is sufficient. He is all we need. And one of my observations, just mine, I can be wrong, is Christians have become way too horizontal in their worldview. We've become way too here and now, way too what if. And if I can lift your chin up just a little bit before you walk out the door today, that'll be a good thing. 
Christ is the sovereign king of the universe. There's no other. And it's always a reminder to me and hopefully you. That's always a recalibration. That's always a way of putting things into perspective. Well, of interest to those Bible nerds like me, uh, 50-some unique words are found in the book of Colossians. Uh, Some of them include visible, supremacy, to fill up, the word philosophy, the word deity. And of this four chapters, and remember, these chapters, divisions we have are man-made. They aren't in the Greek and Hebrew texts that we call the Bible manuscripts. Uh, we, We put these in there for organization. They're there for good reason. But the four chapters, the 95 verses, and about uh, 2,000 words, give or take your English rendering, it's a very short letter. Um, You cannot miss the Christological emphasis of this text. It's about Jesus Christ. Look at some of the words to give you a perspective on this word count. 20 times God, 24 times Christ, 13 times Lord, 7 times Jesus, 3 times Jesus Christ, the divine pronoun, 39 times. And let me make just a side comment. If you use the New American Standard, I think it's the only Bible remaining that still capitalizes what we call the divine pronoun. He, him, you, your. When those terms are used to talk about God or Jesus, uh, they capitalize them. Uh, Translators made a decision long ago to remove the divine pronoun capitalization. And uh, that's a that's a reason I'll never quite comprehend. My complaint with that is not that it somehow is uh, uh, not respecting God. That's not it at all. Sometimes in literature, I don't know who the you is referencing, especially in narrative where the story is going on, especially in Psalms and even in our New Testament. Sometimes who's the he? Who's the you? Who's the your? And I need the help. I need to know that's a capital H, a capital Y, a capital uh, him, uh, so that I know this divine pronoun. So use whatever Bible you want. I'm not telling you you should only use the NASB, but be aware of this when you're reading it. And if you have trouble, of course, we have the technology on your phone and tablets to look up the NASB text if you don't own one to see who's he talking to, especially in the Psalms. Sometimes it's very complicated, and I need that prop, and maybe you do as well. Whom six times, firstborn twice, we'll talk about that in some detail. The head, three times the son and the master, each one. Now, I want you to see the the predominance of Christology in this letter. Again, four short chapters, 95-some verses, and it's replete with. Now, on one hand, you say, well, easy, that's stupid. The Bible's about Jesus. It's about God, yes. But the specificity which Paul the Apostle is talking to the Colossian believers about who this Jesus is, is it does stand alone. It does stand out. Wilkinson and Boa are right. This is about the supremacy of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the backdrop of the story, because we're a stickler about context. What's the context of this verse? What's the context of this passage? And the context of Colossian, the Colossian believers is something that's called Gnosticism. Now, this is an enormous subject, and I don't want to spend time talking at length about it, but I want to give you a snapshot of what Gnosticism is. Before I do that, if someone was to ask you, who knew nothing about Christianity, to give them seven bullets about Christianity, what would you give them? 
It's hard to distill down. Uh, this is the, these are the things we'd have to talk about. Now, some of us would say, I know the gospel, I know da, 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 da. But even still, how do you explain Christianity in America from all the isms, ologies, denominations? It's hard to do. That's not unlike Gnosticism. And to be fair to Gnostics, if there are any, uh, I don't want to try to simplify it, but I don't want to go too far down the hole. Um, Paul is taking issue with this Gnostic invasion into the teaching for the Colossian believers. Let me give you an idea. And most of these are reflected in Paul's writing, so you can kind of add two and two together. But let me just give you a high view of them. Obviously, many different forms. Secondly, false teaching that emerged in the second century. And there's actually a term that weird theologians and Bible nerds like me study called incipient Gnosticism. What led up to Gnosticism? We talk about modernity and post-modernity. What led up to post-modernity? What, what led to Gnosticism? So it gets pretty thick and boring for most people. Um, at core, I think this is perhaps the most important takeaway is the third point, a philosophical and frankly an elite view of philosophy. You had to have this inside information, gnosis, or you, you, weren't, you didn't qualify. If you think of some cults in America and some, uh, let's say, very unusual, quote, religions, they have levels. And when you become a member, you have to go through a certain level, and they allow you to pay for the next level, Literally. And they allow you to pay for the next level. And it's a hierarchy you go up into. And it becomes a little secretive at times. That's a pretty good explanation of Gnosticism. It was tied to Judaism and modern day paganism for them. And it had this commingling of Old Testament laws, regulations, and statutes, along with some other pagan theologies thrown together. Um, a big part of Gnosticism was the worship of angels or acknowledging an angel as a mediator between God and man. Uh, do you remember, some of us are old enough to remember, a, was it maybe a decade or two ago when the Raphael angel thing went crazy with uh, you know, cup coasters and little prints and canvas lookalike prints and the, the two little uh, cherubs that were you know, reflecting upon the Madonna? Uh, I think the painting was uh, Sistina Madonna. Uh, and it was this painting of, of, of the Madonna, and there were two characters on left to right, and these two angels at the bottom looking up. And that thing made it on cups and T-shirts, and it was crazy. We had we had a TV series, Touched by an Angel, which was like 85% heresy. But we had all this stuff going on. There was this whole angelology thing resurgent in the marketing world and Christian bookstores and online purchasing and marketing. And I, I always mused at that going, you know, what is it about man? He's got to put something on a shelf. We've got to have something on the bookcases, Michael. We've got to arrange something on the mantle. And there's something, not, not that having art or something up there is right or wrong, it's just interesting to me. The teaching of angels as mediators is addressed in chapter 2, verse 18, as we continue. A negative view towards the physical and material world. And sometimes you hear the word aesthetic or aesthetic, and there's this notion that things in the physical realm are evil. I don't want to go too far down this because it's not that germane to the text, but that's part of Gnosticism. Uh, it had a Christological base. In other words, they acknowledged the person of Jesus Christ, but not 
accurately. And part of it was they didn't see him as deity, and some believed he was born. And so if you think of modern-day Jehovah's Witness, for example, they believe that Jesus was born at a particular time. He's not the eternal God. He's not part of a Trinitarian God. He was born, and you'll see in a few verses, one of the verses that they appeal to for that. So this all obviously took away from the Trinitarian Godhead. Um, Okay, that's enough. There's much more, but I'm going to look at the text. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, uh, some of you might know the name. He was on television many, many times, a phenomenal apologist. And uh, I was privileged to have him as a professor at uh, seminary. Uh, He was kind of a wire brush. Um, As a professor, he was a force to be reckoned with. After seminary, he's the nicest guy in the world. I remember we went out to, to lunch once. I was in the doctoral program, and a friend of mine and I, we went to lunch together. And um, he was like the nicest guy ever. And I go, Dr. Geisler, what have they done to you? And he said, oh, when you're students, I treat you one way. Now we're a peer. And we went to the little jack-in-the-box across from, from the seminary, and he pulled out this wallet. I'd never seen a man of the, of the cloth with that much money in a wallet. It was like all these 20s and 50s. I went, Dang. And he bought lunch, which was really nice. I was a poor seminarian, but um, he was the nicest guy on the planet, wicked smart. Well, he did a great job that I cannot improve on. He gave three points to summarize it. I've reduced them a bit. Number one, to explain the deity and supremacy of Christ in the face of the Colossian heresy. Number two, to lead believers into spiritual maturity. And number three, to inform them about his own state of affairs, and to ask them to pray for him. Observations, let's look at a number of them. Number one, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's look at the text, Colossians 1.10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let me read it one more time. So that you may will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If you and I focus our time on prayer, on meditation, on study, uh, we're, we're thinking about Him more and more, are we beginning to walk in a manner worthy That's an interesting question. Paul talks about that in Ephesians. We talked about the five walks that he outlines in the letter to the Ephesian believers. And here we get the same language. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy? Well, I think the rest of the passage explains that. But there's this little phrase in there, to please him, that makes me scratch my head. Just this week I had lunch with a friend. And we were talking about, can you please God? And he was telling me what he did to please God. And I was very impressed. But I don't know that I can say this, what I do pleases God. By the way, this would be a great question for your small group. How do you please God? And get your Bible and your concordances out and look up the New Testament uses of please, which I spent a lot of time doing. The passage tells us here we bear fruit and we increase in the knowledge of God. Those are two things the passage is telling us that please God. If I'm walking in a manner worthy of God, I want to please Him in all respects. I want to bear fruit. I want to increase in the knowledge of God. 
Those are clear indications. What, is the, what do those mean? <laughs> what does it mean to bear fruit? That's another big subject. Let's make it simple. You got to reproduce. I uh, have some ivy in the back that I brought to a friend today. Um, I've been propagating ivy from the White House for uh, 20 plus years. We had a friend on the Capitol Hill who was in the White House when we lived in, in Washington, D.C. And if you ever see a picture of the, uh, the, the White House where the president sits with usually a, someone, a, a head of state from some country and there's a, a fireplace and a mantle, there's a Swedish ivy that grows there. And that's been there since FDR. It's a super easy ivy to propagate. You just cut a few leaves off, stick it in a glass of water, and in a few weeks there's a wad of, of uh, roots and you plant it and it goes crazy if you give it some water and light. It's all it takes. Super easy. And we've got a little document we give friends to say this is the story of the White House ivy. It's, it's called the most photographed, planet on, uh, photographed plant in the world. Because it's in every picture in the White House. Um, that propagation bears fruit. Every time I cut all those things off and I put them in a glass of water and sometimes, I kid you not, it's like two days it starts to put little roots out. If you're really fortunate, and it only happens to me probably a dozen times in all these years, it'll actually bloom. The blooms become kind of annoying actually, but they bloom like little irises and they fall on the floor immediately. So it's just kind of a litter bug. But um, it's propagating it. And I have so much fun cutting these little things, sticking them in a little glass of water. I'm weird, I know. I, but I like doing it. And I like watching it grow. And it's bearing fruit from that cutting that goes back to FDR. What about spiritually? How do you and I bear fruit? How do we propagate through our children, through our grandchildren, through people we know, through sharing Christ? In fact, the most clear example of Bearing fruit in the New Testament is not good works, but it's men and women who come to Christ and follow Him. That's the fruit that remains, I believe. Those who come to Christ and follow Him is a result of discipleship. Um, of course, we need to talk about Ephesians 2.10, which we did a couple of weeks ago. And what does it mean to please God? Well, if it has to do with these two things, bearing fruit, the next one I think is very interesting as well, increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, some of us, again, have been around these evangelical Bible teaching churches long enough to know that they, we have been vilified because we just know the Bible. We increase in Bible information. We know too much, we too much Bible study. I think I've shared with you the story on many occasions. I was in the church in D.C. and we had these little response cards. People would write nasty things. Once in a while, nice things. Mostly nasty. And I, I remember this one card. I, I rue the day I didn't keep it and frame it. But they were leaving the church because there was, quote, too much Bible teaching. <laughs> yes, I've won. I've succeeded in life. I can die a happy man. I've been accused of teaching the Bible too much. A lot worse things in life you could be accused of. Um, I think this is more important now than in my entire life as a Christian. People do not know the text. They simply don't know the stories, which is why we're so committed here. We want your children to be exposed to the same thing we're teaching you. So when you drive home, depending on age appropriateness, you can talk about the supremacy of Christ today. You can talk about Colossians maybe. You can talk about some of these key verses maybe. Um, 
I don't know how many of us had a church background that really did it well, and you grew up learning about the heroes of the Bible or the attributes of God or the fruit of the Spirit or whatever it was, and you can go back to those childhood impress and remember, I was exposed to those things. You know, VBS was the attempt to do it on steroids in one week, right? Just to inoculate your kid with everything. Christian camp was, you know, send them away to camp for one week. God will help them, you know, and just indoctrinate them. We've lost that. Easy believism and, you know, how you feel and coloring a picture, those are important. But I want them rooted and grounded in the Word. And which is why, you know, I'm so glad when men and women step forward to help. And if you're not, it's a great opportunity for you to help. Shameless ask. I'm not even embarrassed by it. Can you know too much about God? I like that verse. Bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. Secondly, the supremacy of Christ. First of all, walk in a manner worthy, which Paul is saying, please him, bear fruit, increase in the knowledge of God. Here, the supremacy of Christ. Now this is a little longer passage, and I'm going to come back to it and try to explain a few phrases, but follow along. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Verse 20, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. I've used this passage at Christmas time. I've used it when I taught on creation. I've gone to it again and again and again. There's so much in these verses. Let's look at a few of them. Verse 15, he says, the image of the invisible God. Um, I often use the phrase, the words and works of Jesus Christ, very intentionally, very deliberately, very repetitively, because I want you to change your orientation to the Bible to not just looking at what he says, but what he does. A lot of us miss what he does. And again, I repeat myself, he's the always intentional, always deliberate, never, oh, by the way, Jesus. There's always a rationale by what he says and what he does. And I think the Christian reader needs to keep that in mind and keep it framing when you're reading about this. Now, why is this important? Because God's invisible. You can't see God the Father. Moses got to see the Shekinah uh, as God went by. He got to see the perhaps the cloud formations, the glory, the epiphany. Who knows what he got to see? But he got to see the backside of God, literally. We have some awareness that when he went in to speak to God and he comes out with the Shekinah glowing and freaks people out, so he wears a veil. You know the story. Um, I think he's talking to Christ in that situation, not God the Father. So when this one example where he saw the face of God and lived, 
He really just saw God moving by, and it was a unique experience. <clears throat> no one else in the Scripture had such an experience. But how can you believe in a God you can't see? Great question. That's why we have Jesus Christ. How many times have you and I have a conversation with, I can't love a God who fill in the blank. I can never believe a God who fill in the blank. I just don't see how you Christians believe God because he fill in the blank. All of those comments are making God in Mad's image. I don't think God should allow war. If I was God, I wouldn't have war. Ergo, I could never believe in a God who allows war. I don't think children should die of SIDS or AIDS or some other childhood complication. If I were God, I wouldn't do that. What we're doing is making God in man's image rather than understanding God made us in his image. This is the flip of the fall. But Scripture is clear. If you want to see God, look at Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what God thinks about sexuality? Look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what God thinks about family and marriage? Look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. And look at what others said about him in the corpus of this thing we call the Bible. This is the mind of God in print. Don't forget that. If you want to know what God thinks, you have to spend a little time here. Now, should it be easy? And this is where I think we have to grow up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maturity, when you start out with your ABCs, it's easy. When you get to three-letter words, it's easy. When you use rhyme and songs to teach a child, it's easy. When you get to syntax and diagramming sentences, all bets are off. The multiplication table, do we still make kids memorize the multiplication table? <laughs> you know, we had to memorize all that before you could go through. And then when you went to algebra, and then algebra two, and then trigonometry, oh joy. And calculus, put a gun to my head. I mean, that stuff really taxed me. You know, one plus one and two was easy. Multiplication table, how many of you still count on your fingers? Be honest. Be honest. I appreciate that. We didn't memorize those tables well enough. Knowledge requires growth and maturity, and it gets more and more complex. Why do we think God should be easy to grapple with when we can't even run the multiplication tables? Why would we think the knowledge of God should be easy when we don't remember the basics of the first class we took in physics? I don't think that's an unfair comparison. I think it takes ongoing education for all of us to grow. I, I don't know why we think it should be easy. Um, I can't see him, but I can see the person and work of Christ perfectly. That's sufficient. In fact, it's more than sufficient. Secondly, by him all things were created. I love this phrase. Christ was the creator. And again, if you've been around me, you've heard me say this a thousand times. Jesus Christ is at Genesis 1 and 2. I know some of you don't hold to a literal six-day creation. That's fine. I do. I think Jesus Christ is on his hands and knees making a dirt man. And he breathes the breath of life into him. And he becomes a living being, the image of God. I don't think he crawled out of the primordial soup. I don't think that science can explain through theistic evolution how Adam became Adam. Because the text says he made him in his image. Not like the animal kingdom, not like the plant life, not like the trees. I don't think it's a problem for God to do things in six days with the appearance of age because he's God. 
If he can walk on water, if he can turn water into wine, if he can give a blind man in John 9, congenitally blind, a brand new set of eyes, if he can heal the sick and raise the dead, I think he can handle six days. I just don't think we have a perspective of who this God is. And Paul in Colossians is telling them who are being confused by this stuff going on at that time about the world, about physicality, about law, about who this Jesus is. He says, by him all things were created. Hello, Colossi, don't misunderstand. He created it. Didn't happen on its own. He's the sovereign. If that weren't enough, in verse 16, he was created through him and for him. That's pretty remarkable. Through him, it can't exist apart from him. I have a collection of DVDs, uh, one of those, all the movies in this particular series that uh, one of my kids gave me. It's a great gift, and we watch them occasionally in order. And the first one was great. You know how these series are. second one was good. The third one's always... What is it with three-part series? The middle one's always kind of, eh, you know. But anyway, you go through them all. And uh, the latter ones, I, I joke about, they're, they're starring this person. They're produced by this person. They're directed by this person. They're executive produced by this person. And it's all this person, person, person. And I say it's, it's by, for, and you know, to this person. It's all about that person. It's no longer this team of people who did the first one in the series. I mean that in a negative way. I mean this in a positive way. Everything that has existed was created through him and for him. And it cannot exist apart from him. So when I take those cuttings of ivy and propagate them, I go, I don't understand anything about photosynthesis. I don't understand anything about what I'm even doing. I'm just doing what someone told me to do. But it works. I don't make those ivy cuttings root. I don't make them grow. Now I feed it and water it and fertilize it, give it sunlight, otherwise it doesn't work. But I don't do anything in the root and soil. I don't know how that works. I just know that at some point, months or years later, when it starts to die, that big plant, I take it apart, and that container of dirt is just one complete rat's nest of roots that got nowhere to go. The marvel of God's design. Whether it's a microscope or a telescope, we can't plumb or reach the depths or lengths of what he has done. Verse 17, further, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this brackets is by him and for him and sustained by him. But oh, just in case you're wondering, verse 17, before all things, and all things are held together. So we have the eternality of Jesus Christ, and we have the sustaining work of Jesus Christ. This is why I like the phrase, he's the He's the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. And all those words are important. He's the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. By him, for him, through him, eternally existed, they hold together. Further, he's the head of the body, his church. It's funny how when you... Uh, when we started Stonebridge, Wayne and I and small group, we, we had different church experiences. And some churches have doctrinal statements or a statement of faith, or they have both of them. And we compiled a bunch of these, and uh, we shared it with some of you. And one church has got like 30-some pages. You go to some websites, there's like six bullet points. It's a little different. 30-some pages versus six bullet points. And... Uh, 
Many churches will use the phrase, Jesus Christ is the head of his church. I've often wanted to go to those elders or leaders or whatever their group is and say, what does that mean to you pragmatically that Jesus Christ is the head of your church? That's a hard question to answer, frankly. A church in Dallas, Texas called Believer's Chapel, um, S. Lewis Johnson with the Lord now, was a, a scholar um, some of you might know Sam Johnson, who has been here in the Nashville area for over 50 years, but that's his father. But S. Lewis was a brilliant man and started this church. In fact, in, those, in, in the Believer's Chapel, they had Sunday school classes on New Testament Greek. And it was not uncommon to see probably every third person in the church with the Greek New Testament open in their lap. S. Lewis was a master scholar of a Bible teacher. And um, when, when he was starting Believer's Chapel, that's a real, that's a real exciting marketing name, Believer's Chapel. I'm going to go there, Believer's Chapel. And they sent a copy of the New Testament with their incorporation papers to the state. And they rejected it. And he sent it again. And they rejected it. And he wrote a cover letter and said, I can't write it any shorter. This is our doctrinal statement and statement of faith. And you know, the third time they gave him a pass. And he's the only one I know that ever pulled that off. But think about today trying to start a nonprofit, 501c3, get a Tennessee charter, whatever state you might be in. Here's, my, here, here's what I believe. Here's my IRS documents and here's the Bible for you. You never get past, you know, the mail clerk, Right? What does it mean that Christ is the head of his church? Well, for one thing, it ain't about us. It's his church. I have a lot of pastor friends around the country. I have been blessed and ministered to by a lot of men who are far more by measure of success successful than me, by peer, by some who are you know, maybe in different places in ministry. And one of the tells, and maybe it's just my odd particular bent, very likely, when someone says, my church, who's a pastor, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Now, if you're a member of a church, that's one thing to say, my church. But if you're a pastor and you say, my church, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because it sounds, it sounds terrible. It's not yours. It's his. We're servants. We're, at best, shepherds. We're elders. We're leaders. We're on staff. But it's Christ's church. That's a great name for a church. There's a lot of them out there, but that's a great name for a church. It's Christ's church. He's the head. Too many man-made churches that are empires. Verse 18, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, Jehovah's Witness will use this as a sharpening stone to say that he was the firstborn of creation, that he was the firstborn from the dead. They take the whole council of Scripture aside and they go, see right there it says he was born um, the problem is firstborn here means supremacy, not the first one out of the womb. When you have a son, in most cultures, uh, the firstborn son is really important. I've traveled abroad to a number of countries where, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be unkind to women, but chauvinism reigns in a lot of the world. 
and it's only about men and about their sons. And uh, I was in Nigeria many, many years ago, and I remember uh, being with families, and it didn't matter how many children you had, the, the son in the lineup was the firstborn. So you might have a daughter or two, but when you had a son, and the interesting thing about Nigeria, which was, it was just, I thought it was fascinating, uh, if, if your name was Tabitha, and you finally had a son, or he was your firstborn, let's say his name was Yusuhu, from now on, your name is Mama Yusuhu, the mother of the firstborn son, because they understood this idea of primacy, because that boy's going to what? Carry the name, the way we view these maiden names and so forth around the world. It's not meant to be chauvinistic. The text is saying he's the firstborn in the sense that he's supreme. Another way of thinking about it is owner. He's the owner of everything. Verse 20, he made peace through the blood of the cross. No one, no one can make lasting peace but Jesus Christ. There's no peace apart from him. There's temporal peace. There's alliances. There's treaties. There's handshakes, there's negotiations. The only one who can truly bring peace is Jesus Christ. And his peace is more important than even peace between two nations. His peace is between those who are eternally lost and those who will be eternally saved. He's reconciled sinners to himself and made peace through the blood of the cross. Number one, worthy manner, we walk in a worthy manner. Number two, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, all the things we've listed. And now we have a warning in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Don't be deceived. Colossians 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. For believers in Colossae, this elite idea, this Gnostic idea, if that's what Paul has in mind, there's this special group of people that get to know it, and if you don't, you're not in the know. Uh, Paul says, no, no. That's philosophy. That's empty deception. That's the tradition of men rather than according to Christ. This is so prevalent today. Uh, One of the reasons I stay engaged with social media, which I have a huge love and mostly hate with anymore, is to watch what Christians are saying. And it generally breaks my heart. We used to say Christianity was a half inch deep and a thousand miles wide. I think it's about one sixty-fourth inch deep today. We don't know what we don't know. If you send a, just think through trends and uh, hashtags and what tra- I'm talking about Christian in Christian world, not in the world abroad. Um, I mean, you, you can introduce race theory, political theory, uh, critical race theory, social justice theories, and you put that into the Christian milieu. And it'll make you weep and laugh and cry and all points in between. In no small part because it is human philosophy and Paul says empty. It's not just that it's empty, it's deceptive. 
So when a church or a Christian moves over to an issue, I'm asking you the question, do you think they're focused on the knowledge of God? Do you think they're focused on growing in Christ? Are they growing to be more like the person and work of Jesus Christ? Or are they caught in the trap of the culture? Colleges and universities have changed so much since when most of us were there. Some of you are still in college, some of you are in grad, post-grad school. It's a different world. I was talking to a friend, this is eight, ten years ago, who was going to a school in our area in their religion department, and what he was up against, I couldn't believe it. Another friend that finished a PhD downtown, and uh, we went to the same uh, master's school, and then he went over to Beeson in Alabama and did a PhD over here, and he almost did not survive because what the professors who were over him thought of his view of Christianity. But he wanted this PhD from this particular school. And he was just beat up for most of his dissertation. It's not what it used to be. It used to be critical thinking. It used to be, okay, you can think that and we can think that. Let's have a dialogue. Let's talk about that. What are the pros and cons? And if you take a debate course when you're in college, nobody it was so challenging because our professor would come in and he had two pieces of paper. And it was, and literally, this is a state college in Texas, pro-life, pro-abortion. And he would hand them out. He'd send you to the corner for 10 minutes. He'd say, I don't care if you believe it or not. I want you to debate the position. And we came back and we debated it. You had to use the best you could to debate that topic. Right or wrong, that was critical thinking. Good luck trying to find that today. I had a friend that went to law school. One of these guys I just I love, but I hate him. Perfect score on the LSAT. Passes his bar the first time. Number one in his law school. In class of 400, his father told me the story because he wouldn't talk about himself, which is understandable. But his father told me the story. 400 students in this class, and it's one professor that was patently anti-Christian. Hated Christians. And he would say things from time to time, and this young man would raise his hand and kindly joust with the professor. And all the other Christians in there are going, man, this guy's going to flunk out of this course. He's never going to graduate. Well, when you have a 4.0 average and you perfect score on the LSAT, you've probably got a pretty good likelihood he's going to do okay. Well, two things happened. The Christians in the classroom kind of started paying attention to this guy and becoming his friends. Second thing that happened, he graduated top of law school, and when he graduated, his father came, obviously also an attorney, and that professor sought out the student's dad, quote, I'm not a Christian, but your son is the finest representation of a Christian I've ever seen. Boy, it takes a lot of courage to be that person. It's a different day than even when he was in, in law school. And I'm not telling you you should be that person. What I am saying is that Paul's talking about being captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. Just because 100 people think this is the answer does not mean it's the answer. Walk in a worthy manner. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, the warning not to be deceived, and the warning of self made religion. Verse 20. If you've died with Christ to the elemental principles of the world, 
Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. Notice that. They look wise in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, just to talk about that last part ever so briefly, they believed in this, in this sort of aesthetic environment that's not, if you hate the flesh, you beat the flesh, you control the flesh, you suppress the flesh, then those indulgences don't make you sin. And what Paul is addressing here is, no, don't submit yourself to this nonsense. Or to say it in perhaps modern vernacular, we're all frogs in the cultural kettle. And you've got to be aware that the temperature's rising ever so slowly before you drink the same Kool-Aid. These have no value, is his point. Walk in a worthy manner, the supremacy of Christ, a warning of don't be deceived, a warning of self-made religion. And finally, the first three verses of chapter 3, Keep seeking Christ. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. For where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Notice the phrase things above twice there. Seeking the things above. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Why, might ask? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, in our New Testaments is a conditional clause, and sometimes you can read it since. So when you see if or therefore if, sometimes in your brain would, would since work, and since works well here grammatically and textually. Since you have been raised up with Christ. This isn't a question, have you trusted Christ? He's talking to the believers in Colossae, the believers of the church. And he's saying, since you have been saved, let's put it that way, keep seeking things above. It's a heavenly view. How often do I tell you this earth is not our home? When Cindy and I got married over 40 years ago, and we walked the aisle and said the vows and the things and the hmm and walked out. Uh, besides being a blur in a very hot, humid Houston day, July 19th, 1980 in Houston, Texas, uh, and wanting to get out of this room and go on our honeymoon, um, from that moment on, like it or not, I am no longer Michael. I'm Michael and Cindy. She's no longer Cindy. She's Cindy and Michael. Two sinners have become one. I don't understand all I know. But two became one flesh. And we learned to fight. And we learned to have joy. And we learned to sort things out. And we grew together and we separated and we came metaphorically and we came together and we argued and we fought and we loved and we had joy and we had loss and we had discouragements and disappointments and we had one child, and then all of a sudden, I'm not just Michael and Cindy and Cindy and Michael, I'm a father. My identity changed one more time. And then we had more children. And that, we had four children, three of whom were adopted. And so now I'm a parent 
to three children who were adopted and a biological child. No, that's my family. I'm not going to differentiate between adopted and non. This, these are our people God put in that, in that roof. So I'm a father, and Cindy's a mother, and now we're grandparents. Oh, that you should live so long. <laughs> and we have these wonderful, grand, perfect grandsons, and another grand girl on the way. It's going to be fun. Going to be fun watching her raise three kids, huh? <laughs> my role changed again. I was Michael. Then I was Michael and Cindy. I was a husband. Then I was a husband. I was Michael and Cindy, husband and father. And now I'm Michael, Cindy, husband and a grandfather. All those are different roles, are they not? Now, here's the part you have to take by faith. The 23 years I was a single man are nothing compared to almost 64 here coming up real quickly. I've been with that woman in the back. Most of us in this room, if you're married, will be married longer to your wife without kids than any other identity you have. Right? I mean, obviously some go through divorces and we bury a spouse, we're hurt. No question, I'm not trying to gloss over the realities of life. But in the main, that's what's going to happen to us, right? What's my identity? Do you ever think back of when before you were married and you want to be that person? I don't. Now when I was immature, I thought that was, you know, a better life, a better gig. But at 40 years, when I wake up in the morning, I get out of bed, I shave and shower and Go have my cup of coffee, my devotion, see my wife on the couch having her devotion. It might be four in the morning, it might be five in the morning. I look at that woman, I walk by her and I go, I can't imagine life without her. Sure, we still disagree. Sure, we still have challenges. Sure, we still have, but in the main, no. In the main, it's like seamless. And if she's gone all day working, I'm, where are you? When are you come home? I didn't care for her to get I just want to know if she's in the house, Right? And when, and when I'm gone, when are you coming home? I'm going to take a trip here in a few days to go see some friends, and she'll miss me. Now, she tells me that. I'm taking it by faith. <laughs> she'll miss me. Why? Because her identity changed. My identity changed. I enjoy being with my wife. Did that come easy? No. Was the work worth it? Absolutely. And I can't imagine life without her. How much more your relationship with Jesus Christ? How much more? The only way you and I are going to grow is to be grounded in the Word. Twice he says, set your mind on things above. Keep seeking things above. Set your mind on things above. Let me land the plane. What takes first place in your life? It's really that simple. What's first place? place in your life. And if we're honest, because we're friends, there are a lot of things that crowd out Christ. Health, being single maybe, going through divorce maybe, having a very challenging marriage. Maybe you have lost a child. Maybe you got a child that's going through terrible medical issues. Maybe you've got your, your economy during COVID is in the drink. Maybe you're really freaked out about the politics of our culture and what's going to happen in the next two years, as a lot of people are. Maybe you're filling in the blank. The Bible never says worry about today. 
It says, keep your mind fixed. The author of Hebrews will say, you should be focused on, fixed on, keep your eyes on. Paul in Colossians says, keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on things above. I've shared this many times again, but I remember taking driver's driver's ed and um, had a great teacher. And one thing he harped on was the mirrors, the mirrors, the mirrors. He said, you need to look in your driver's side, passenger side, and rearview mirror every 30 seconds. And I don't know, why, why do some things stick when people say, I don't know, I wish you knew the answer to that. But that stuck with me. And we can be going down Highway 24 with no traffic in sight. And you know what I'm doing every few seconds? I can't not. It's automatic. I don't think about it. One thing he told me that was very hard to learn and continues, to, I have to remind myself, it's to look farther down the road. Most people look one car link or they look at the car in front of them, which is the worst way to drive. Now, technology has come along to help us idiots behind the wheel with lane control and things that alarm. Maybe your steering wheel vibrates one side or the other, or I like the seats that vibrate if you get in one lane or the other. Ooh, <laughs> kind of exciting. <laughs> and, and you're, no, get over there, go over there. Now, now we're going to have cars that drive themselves, God help us all. And uh, when you're driving down a highway, especially, we were going down 24 the other day in a lot of traffic, and I found myself looking at the car, no, easily look down further. Two things happen if you look down further. You see more, and you stay in the lane. I don't understand all I know. But when you look further down the fairway, you're going to hit a better ball. Weirdest thing about golf, one of the 15,000 reasons I don't play, besides having a bad back, you've got to keep your head down when you drive. It makes no sense to me. I want to see where it goes. No, you don't look there. You look there before you swing. When you drive, you look down there before you get there. Does that help you think about keeping your mind up? I promise you, you and I look at our problems, we're not going to get any better. Look a little bit up. Look to Christ. Do you really think Christ is unaware of your challenge? Do you think he's uncaring about your condition? Do you think he doesn't know? The, the strangest part of the Christian life is we tremendously underestimate how interested Jesus Christ is in every area of our lives. From your marriage to your finances to your sex life to your health to your children, your parenting, your grandparenting to whatever thing you're going through. We live in a different world than the ancients did, but not really. We think we're smarter. We're not. Technology has made things easier, but it hasn't really changed human nature. What takes first place in your life? In chapter 1, verse 18, he himself will come to have first place in everything. How do you keep him first? Well, I can't give everyone a unique answer, but I can tell you, if you're not looking at him, if you're not looking at his words and his works, you're never going to look up. 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.